Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy, and we're here with Stephen of Nudge. How's it going? It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Rob. Thanks for coming on the show. So let's be clear. We have talked to Nudge Rewards. Um, Stephen's not Nudge Rewards. You're Nudge, I guess. We're Nudge. Nudge, nudge Software. Nudge. Nudge. Nudge, nudge AI. N recently rebranded Nudge AI. So why don't you tell everyone who don't doesn't know what Nudge is all about, what Nudge does? Sure. Very simply, we're a sales platform for salespeople who are trying to sell into major accounts. We use AI to do all of the background research that you need as a salesperson to start the conversations, to build trust, to build those relationships. And we help you use that research and use those relationships to get into the right sales conversations and make your quota. So as a salesperson at a selling into the enterprise usually, or it can be really anybody? It would, it would be... Um, more significant deals. If you're selling right. $50 widgets over the phone, not much we can do to help <laughs> you. But if you're selling something that's in the 50, 60, 80, 100K range and you need to understand relationships, you need to build trust, that's where we help the most. And what what kinds of things do you unearth that, that helps a salesperson? Like, you know, I've used your software, but uh, for... You know, I'm selling into an enterprise or something where, where you know, TWG, we, do, we sell custom software. So I'm like, okay, you need some stuff. Do yep. it's like, is it like their list of dirty laundry? Like, what do you? <laughs> we, we, we stop short of blackmail. Although, <laughs> okay. let me write that down That's as a feature, feature request. request. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a um, combination of things. One, it is news and events. So what's going on there, we'll look for um, executive transitions, new initiatives, um, uh, any sort of expansion, those kind of things that give you opportunities to, to sell in and to start a conversation. We'll look at social behavior, what's going on, what are they talking about. Um, we'll look at um, the relationship graph that you already have so you can build that sort of social context and say, hey, I'm trying to you know talk to Elizabeth. I know that she knows Rob really well. Great, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop that name and say, hey, you know, we think we got some common friends. Um, we also look at the behavior of those people with your marketing. So have they mm. downloaded your research? Have they started the free trial? Have they been on your website? Have they responded to a campaign? All of those little tiny cracks that give you that opening to start a conversation. So we we put together that that whole set from news to social to marketing behavior figure out from there what the most interesting ones look like and then cue that up for you and say you probably want to start a conversation around one of these two things this just happened yesterday get on it now does it have anything to do i mean the etymology of the name of the company probably has something to do with that does it not absolutely yeah i mean obviously uh richard thaler had a had a great book on, on sort of the the nudge psychology there mm -hmm. um we're big believers that a lot of a lot of psychology and a lot of relationships are, are sort of tied to that concept if you if you think about how you build that familiarity with somebody, it's it's a lot of little things. If you yes. look at a relationship, it's sort of it's just being in touch and noticing it's things. Like sending a card, saying, sending a, Hey, you know, Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays and pretending like you care at least. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so so just just knowing that there's an opportunity to drop that little nudge in and stay top of mind with somebody has this huge effect on psychology. When they say, Hey, I, I need a thing. Well, who do I know that can offer things? Oh, well, this person's top of mind because we've been chatting about golf and we've been chatting about you know something that happened in the news and they promoted something that I did on social media and we're we have that trusted relationship. And how does it work? Like typically, when you're an organization that's selling uh, more than widgets, you have a, a real CRM, Salesforce yep. or something like that. Uh, does how does Nudge work with the because salespeople presumably have those? Sure. And I think 
for me at least, the problem that CRMs seem to have is they're great at organizing data, they're great at reporting to managers about how salespeople are doing, but as a salesperson, there's not much insight coming from there. So yep. how, how does how do they work in conjunction with CRMs? That's I, I'm, I'm glad you led off with that because that's definitely the observation we've seen from ourselves and every salesperson we've talked to. They're, they're not <laughs> actionable. They don't they don't give you a right. a thing. So we start with usually you start with the definition of your target accounts. Right. Most organizations you have a CRM. You've got an account strategy. I'm a salesperson, here's my target accounts, these are who I'm going after. So you start with that, you pull that into Nudge, and then we start doing the research there on, okay, well, who's there? Who are in the roles that you care about? You need to build a set of relationships with marketing, with sales, with finance. These are the people, this is how you get in. Mm -hmm. You're starting from scratch, you've got very few relationships. Then we start doing the research and saying, okay, here's here's what's going on at those accounts. Here's what's going on with those people. Here's who can actually get you into those people. Here's how your social graph already connects you to those people. If you look at a lot of communities, they're pretty tightly tied. Mm -hmm. Once you start connecting with your executive team and your influencers and your, your advocates for your companies, you end up seeing a way into a lot of organizations you're trying to start the conversation with. And then we just keep the research flowing. Here's here's what's going on this morning that gives you a couple of conversation starters against that list of a thousand people that you want to build relationships with. And just rinse, lather, repeat. Keep doing that and the relationships grow and the deals flow from that. That's pretty cool. So um, what, when did you guys, uh, how many founders are you and when did you start Nudge? So we started uh, about two and a half years ago. Uh, it's myself and Paul Tashima who are the founders of the company. And uh, we know each other from a, a prior gig called Eloqua in the marketing space. Uh, we came out of that. We, uh, we sold Eloqua in 2013 to Oracle. Mm -hmm. And uh, both Paul and I stuck around for a while and um, kind of thought about okay, where does, where does life take us from here and what's interesting and what's next? And, and out of those conversations, the idea of nudge popped out from from there, and we dove in and started it. So let's let's put a pin in that. Even though you gave away the the ending, uh, take a uh, take a quick back uh, take a quick step backwards. So your the the first startup you actually did was Eloqua. Yep. And it was like how many founders of that company? So there were three of us that founded Eloqua. Mm -hmm. uh, myself, Mark Organ, and Abe Wagner. Uh, we started that in. January of 2000. Um, so just the so dot com don't bust. ask me about market timing. It's yeah. clearly not my forte. If you ever see us raising money or starting a company, short every market imaginable. <laughs> We've got that history. Um, started that in January of 2000 and and uh, ground that one out for 12 and a bit years. So, so just what what did you see at that point? You don't have to go into detail about what, but at a high level, what what did Aliqua do? Like what did you think it did when you started it? Those are two very separate questions. Yeah, so let's start with the second one first. It's the 2000, uh, for those who aren't old enough to remember, that was, uh, I, I started my career uh, just around then too, and that was a dot-com bust. Yep. Just around the dot-com bust. Yes. But at early 2000 was yes, not. Was. Late 2000 was, if, if memory serves. Uh, March. March, I yeah, think, was okay. the NASDAQ peak. There yeah. you go. So uh, what were you trying to do at the time? So the initial idea of Eloqua was hey, there's this internet thing, right? It was all new and nobody really knew what to do with it and everyone wanted an internet and, and that was that was the uh, I had spirit of the time. Yes. <laughs> exactly, as one does. Um, and we realized that this was going to do interesting things to sales, right? Because you had a lot of salespeople who relied on the information they had. Hey, you want to know anything about our space? I will come in and talk to you and bring brochures, you know, paper right. brochures. Yeah. And 
you you very quickly saw this this disintermediation of the information. We're going to go to a website. You've got one of those, right? And we're going to get the information there. So our observation was sales is getting disintermediated. Our thesis was you could take this sort of hello, can I help you idea and move it to the web with sort of a proactive live chat concept. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> a little known history of Eloqua, that was actually one of the first products we had out there was this, hey, can I help you live chat? Right. Which is Everything not... old is new again. It's, uh, it bots <laughs> or everything. It's now right. coming back. Yeah, yeah we, were, we were only 15 years ahead. Um, minor detail. So that was... Um, complete bust as a product, but we wanted to prove to people, hey, there's there's a thing there, right? So yeah. we went really deep on web profiling. We said, okay, we, we know who's on your website. And then they said, well, I, I want to know who it is. I don't want to know Visitor 27. I want to know whether it's a student or a CEO. So we kind of backed ourselves into marketing mm. so that we could then identify the website visitors. Send an email, they click on the email, they come to the website, we know who it is. Still nobody's chatting. So then we said, well, we got to prove it to people. So we started this ability to send out these reports that said, you sent out a marketing campaign. These are the people that were on the website. And still nobody's chatting. And they said, well, this is cool. Let's keep doing that. But can you take this report of people that didn't come and send them this other campaign? And can you take the people that did come and send them out to sales as leads so they can get on the phone and call them? We're like, no, you've got to chat with them. And finally, after being bludgeoned by customers for the longest <laughs> time about this, we realized that we were kind of there, but not there. Mm -hmm. And and so the genesis of marketing automation really came out of this, send out an outbound marketing campaign, look at the behavior, and if this, do that, if not this, do something else. And so very quickly, we sort of crystallized this flow, and that became marketing automation, and that's the the story of Eloqua's success really was the growth of marketing automation rather than chatbots. Right. Uh, you would have been too early anyway. Exactly. It, so we're good. <laughs> so did you, at that point, did you guys, uh, I mean, entrepreneurship has changed quite significantly. I feel like, you know, the 20, 2008, 2009 is when the whole lean thing became hip and cool and a different perspective on how you do entrepreneurship. Plus, you know, the tools to build, you know, low cost businesses or no cost businesses is like, there was no AWS, there was no Google Cloud. It was just, you buy servers, you put them in a room, you have eye scans and stuff like that. So did you guys think you had to raise money at the time? Like when you started, you're like, okay, I got to go to a venture capital. Like what did you do to-, to Oh yeah, yeah, I, I think um, venture capital at the time was fairly well known because businesses were very heavy. So, you know, you look at V1 of venture capital, that goes back decades, right? Sure. That was sort of the, you know, the, the heavy software. But there was no, my point is there was no accelerators. Angel oh. investors were not as <clears throat> commonplace, right? Uh, and being able to angel invest was not commonplace. So at the time, what did you guys do? Did you like, well, bootstrap this and then get venture capital? Like, did you even, what did you do? We we pitched every VC imaginable. Okay. And um, yeah, it was it was a little embarrassing. Um, we, we definitely did not have the guidance to do a good pitch. In fact, I think one VC ended the meeting by saying that was the most Bush League presentation I have ever seen. <laughs> Um, which, you know, we take that as a point of pride now. Um, so we, we pitched every Canadian VC, of which there were very Three. few. We went down. Yeah, now there's that. five? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, we went down to the, to the U.S. We pitched every VC there. Um, and, and by hook or by crook, we did end up getting um, we, our first 
major VC was JMI out of Baltimore, and, and they sort of came up into the Canadian wilderness and, and looked around and said, okay, there's some interesting stuff here. Um, so they were one of the first Americans to come across the border, and it was a little hairy for them, but you know we got that deal done. And then once you've got one American VC at the time, it was sort of, okay, you've... Social you've, proof kind of thing. You've got a little social proof. It's weird, but we can look at it. Right. Um, so then Bay and Bessemer ultimately were, were arguably smoother investment rounds because Canada had become a little bit more known by then and we had some social proof. So the, the second and third were a little less hairy. What did you did you guys bootstrap at first or did you get it in friends and family? Like, how did you get because those mistakes that you made, were they venture capital backed mistakes? Or were uh, they... No, we I, it kind of depends where, right? We've got this litany of mistakes. Sure, but the, the first one you're like, it's a chatbot. Like, were you just um, like, let's each put in, you know, 50K, 100, whatever the number is. Oh, it was, and then it was desperate times. I mean, we, um, it was sort of friends, family, strangers on the street, every dollar that we had. The founding team had kind of come together at about 10 people at that point in time. Okay. Nobody was taking any salaries. Um, we, we realized that we'd gone bankrupt a few times, and you realize that. <laughs> You know, the MBA version of going bankrupt is you have no cash, right? So you're bankrupt, right. which is not actually true because there's no arbiter of bankruptcy that says, aha, you're out of cash. I, right. I, I now slam the doors on your business. What actually happens is the landlord locks your doors and repossesses your furniture for non-payment of rent. That's kind of the, that's the actual grim reaper of startups. Mm -hmm. And so we realized this and realized that they can't do that if there's somebody present in the building, or at least so we thought. So we took turns sleeping in the office overnight so that they couldn't actually lock the doors on us, which was a little a little sketchy, but you kind of do what you need to in those in those times. And and eventually managed to kind of pull the nose up and get, you know, sort of ramen profitability in the early days where we're not taking any salary, but we can sort of we can pay the basic bills and keep the lights on. And and who was paying you at that point? We did we did have some early customers. Right. They were yeah. paying for for the for the pieces of the marketing automation because that's what they were paying for at the time or was it something so earlier? So what ended that? up happening was, and, and this is sort of not the way that a lot of the, the, the retroactive um, writing of, of great histories always happens, but realistically, we, we had a set of functionality that um, did a bunch of different stuff mm -hmm. and we were absolutely desperate for revenue. So you, you sort of you kind of lean into it and say if you're going to write us a check this is sort of 2001 2002 these are dark times if you're going to write us a check we will build whatever you want yeah so we ended up with a very sort of enterprise capable product that nobody could use to save their life and a thick services team on top of that that made it happen for people and then we sort of backfilled the product from there um, so we, we had customers that were paying us to do things, but there was a pretty thick layer of humanity between the, the, the code and the thing that got delivered, which we then sort of said, oh, well, there's, there's a there there. If we just automate what this person is doing manually and turn it into product, there's, there's some there there. Um, so we did have customers in the time, but it was, it was, uh, it was stretchy. And how do you know, like, you know, uh, this is true each time, uh, how did you know that it was worth sleeping in the building to keep the doors open? Like, you know, it's you could have just been like, yeah, you know, we have no money. It's it's done. How did you know that it's worth kind of bashing your head against the wall? You don't know. I, I don't I don't think there is some magical. Oh, here's the I think every entrepreneur goes through this 
funny emotional roller coaster. And this happens like three times within a day where you go from we're taking over the world to we're, about to go to business. we're totally out of business. We should just fold this up. We're taking over and, and you do that three times in a day. And so if you if you pinpoint one of those and say, How did you know? And you 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 grab it at that moment in time when you're you're on the high. Well, because we saw this wonderful vision in front of us. Y yeah, but thirty minutes later, you thought you were bankrupt, right? Like we all go through that. Mm -hmm. I, I think, um, you know, there's an element of just pointless stubbornness that comes into entrepreneurship, where you're like, I don't see a path to success, but I am going to keep grinding away at this until a crack opens or somebody handcuffs me and throws me to the side of the street because I'm not just going to walk away from it because I'm too stubborn. Um, I, I don't think you, you, you necessarily see the path every step of the way. Right. So, so you know, uh, in, in sort of today's terms, a 12-year-old startup is not, uh, like most people like, especially in Canada, they act it's like been two years, that's enough. Uh, you guys kept raising money and then you, you chose to sell to Oracle as opposed to going public or something. What was the, um, the thinking behind 12 years is the time to sell versus 10 versus public versus whatever. No, I think um, we always went into it with the idea of let's build a, let's build a business. Let's build mm -hmm. something that is big, that is interesting, that changes things, that, that really delivers value. And if you do that, then the exit options become available. Right. Um, so we, we actually did the, the sort of the second to last page of the story, we actually did take the company public. Um, wow. We took it public on the NASDAQ and Oracle picked us up before our lockup clause had expired oh, four I months see. later. So right. I, I think, but at that point, it becomes one of those things where, you know, you've got a you've got a hundred million dollar revenue company, you can take it public. That is a very valid option, but it becomes a financing event, right? It's just, hey, let's let's do this and get some liquidity for some shareholders and get some financing in. It doesn't really change the business. Yeah. Um, the acquisition obviously does because then you've now got new masters and you're, you know, you're you're solving a different problem. But you know, the IPO was just a financing step on a on a journey of let's go build a really interesting business. But if say Oracle had come and offered a similar or the same amount, would you have just sold it at that point before the IPO? Do you think? Uh, here's where I'm going with it. Yep. So there is this narrative, especially in, in Canadian entrepreneurship, that uh, we'll take the company public, grow the company, don't sell. And I think we, we, we beat ourselves up over um, uh, overselling companies because oh, Canadians don't think big enough. Blah 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 blah. blah. Um, I know your acquisition was celebrated, but uh, do you think that's bull it's a bullshit narrative? I, I don't think you can ha ever have a narrative that's black and white. Right. Um, you know, we were we were paid a very healthy price um, for the business, um, which at the time was the right decision to make. Absolutely. You know, we, we sort of, we looked at where we were able to take the business. We looked at the convergence of marketing clouds and, and where the marketing and CRM industries in general were going. Um, you know, we, we looked at the offer that they had on the table and, and it was the right decision to make. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think you have to look at every decision that way. Right. You can't say you can never sell. That's, that's kind of a, an overly black and white version of it. I, I think build a great business and make the decisions as they come in front of you. This, and is, the, this is the problem that I have with it. It's like when when Tumblr sold to Yahoo for a billion dollars, I feel like if that was Canada, we'd be like, 
oh, they should have gone public. I can't believe they sold to Yahoo, but because it was happening in New York and it was selling to an American company, oh my God, the founder's got a billion dollars. Like, it just seems a bit odd but to I, me. But I think, I think, too, like that's sort of part of a greater narrative on entrepreneurship, which is there are always a thousand people to armchair your decision as an <laughs> yeah. entrepreneur yep. and one entrepreneur to make the decision. Yep. And and every decision has massive trade-offs. Why did you build this feature? Why is this product not not better? You know, why why don't you have this capability? Why don't your salespeople like, yeah, everything is a trade-off and you're always doing a far more terrible job of 98% of your business than you want to. And there's always an armchair quarterback to say, you know, I'm looking over here on your website. There's a spelling mistake. Yeah, that probably is, but everything's a trade-off, and and we'll get to that. And and I think you know, you know that is really sort of part of that what kind of that armchair. armchair quarterbacking. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So, what what's fascinating about you guys is so you you said you you took a break. You had a cigarette after the acquisition, or and there's some earnout period. I guess you stuck around in Oracle for a while until um, you're like, okay, we stuck around for. Yeah, so Paul and I both stuck around for, I want to say, seven, eight months or so, get the team landed. Right. There's a lot of, it's one of the interesting things with acquisitions. The the team has higher levels of nervousness than I was expecting. Okay. You know, people were, were thinking, hey, are we going to all get fired tomorrow? I'm like, you're being bought because you're innovative, new, and a growth element. No, you're not, as an engineer, you're not getting fired. Mm-hmm. HR, Maybe that's a valid concern, but right. you know, as an engineer, that is not a risk. Right. You may find your life changes a little bit, and you're frustrated with the politics, but you're not going to get fired. Right. So, but there was that nervousness there, and we wanted to get everyone. You know, these are people that we had grown up with, right? They're sort of we've been at it for ten years. You want to get them landed and say, now you know the landscape, and you can make the decision with real data rather than postulated it, stuff yeah. where you're like, that's not that's not reality. So we got the team landed. Um, we weren't we were public before, right? So there's no lockup. Um, uh, on us. Uh, so we just at a certain point said, you know, time to try something new. Right. Uh, but given that you guys were the co-founders of lockup or no lockup, you clearly had insight into the space. Did they not want to keep you around? Um, yes. Um, or you'd successfully disseminated all your <laughs> knowledge and skills into product. And well, people that... no, I think, I think, uh, I mean, I only have my view on it sure. from my side, but I think it, the, the flip side is, um, Founders are probably really annoying as employees. <laughs> yeah. Quite opinionated, quite stubborn, not really that good as a cog in a wheel. Um, so I, I think you see that natural dynamic where founders, founding team, generally find their way to get a team landed and then say, Look this is not really going to be good for any of us going forward because it's not my DNA, it's not your DNA. You know, it just doesn't it doesn't work as a dynamic. So sure enough, we so so how long did you take time off before you um, four days, <laughs> which includes Saturday and Sunday? Um, well, <laughs> and was it just like an itch to do it something? Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, my God, this this nudge theory. It's a thing we can productize. It was just like, oh, my God, we need to just. Ah. Yeah, it was it was the itch of I want to be doing something and and. You know, the, the period of time where we're getting the team landed, I knew that I was leaving. So I was transferring everything that I could to the team that was ultimately going to be responsible for it, which left me basically being a talking head about marketing automation, getting up on stage and saying rah rah marketing automation, you know, which is a, a talk I could do quite comfortably. And and that was it. I had very little in terms of tactical responsibilities. So 
I was thinking and reading and getting caught up on all of the latest stuff, mm -hmm. which of course is a 12 year old technology. We were no longer doing the latest stuff. Mm -hmm. We were dated. So I was getting all excited to see what was possible and itching to get my hands dirty with it. So, you know, when day one after the, the transition happened, all right, let's go, let's go do something. And then how, so this is interesting because there's not that many, um, especially Canadian second time entrepreneurs successful coming back, doing it again. Um, did you, uh, did you just like say, okay, I will allocate a certain amount of cash cause, and then start, start nudge that way. And, and was it based on like, is, is the product kind of what it is today? Or was it like also kind of, it went to the left, but really ended up going to the right. You know, the, the, the product has been more or less, I mean, obviously a ton of small nuances, more or less where we thought it would be. Relationships are absolutely crucial mm -hmm. to tackle relationships. You've got to go deep and really understand what's going on and, and surround that person you're trying to build a relationship with, with, with insight around what, what's happening in their world. Um, and it's going to matter for a certain chunk, chunk of sales where relationships are actually critical. So, you know, there's nuances that obviously have evolved over time, but that general thesis has stayed relatively constant. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, you, you know, getting to the second part of your question on, on funding, the really nice thing being second time entrepreneurs is there is much more of a belief in idea and team. I mean, the thesis for um, both the friends and family round that we kicked things off with and the seed round that we did with, with Omer's um, fundamentally was a was a team and space idea thesis. It wasn't, hey, what are your metrics and how are they growing month right. on month? You know, too early for that. It was, you guys seem to have done it before. You can grind it out. And we kind of like this general thesis of a space. Go try and figure something out there and let us know how it goes, uh, which you know is, is a lot nicer of a process than if you're 25 and trying to raise on an idea, you really have a lot more proving to do than you do as second timers. So how do you, um, <clears throat> one note, one thing I've noticed with uh, second or third or fourth time entrepreneurs is um, they have they have this belief that, that they were potentially more, uh, this is not a, a critique necessarily, but they, it wasn't luck, it wasn't timing, it was them, that they have more to do with the success of the business and Couple that with the fact that you you aren't about to be locked out of your house. You 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 do have the capital to kind of say, oh, let's try this for a month. So you can overbuild a product or overbuild an idea and not listen to your customers because you aren't as hungry for the for the for for the first dollar or whatever. How how have you guys uh, have you noticed that and have you tried to avoid falling into that trap? Absolutely. I mean, those are those are very valid. I mean, there are landmines in either path, first yeah. time or second time. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just different, right? Yeah, I, second I think, time is different. You know, and, and sort of going back to the the Eloqua story, I think we're we're sort of lucky in the sense that we can look at that objectively and say, "Wow, we totally screwed it up." You know, here here were some great um, moments and insights that happened to come slap us in the face, but it wasn't us as visionaries on a hill saying, ha ha, here's the future. Mm -hmm. it, we did that and it was totally wrong. Um, and we did it again, it was wrong again. But, you know, I think we look back at that and the lessons that we take away are not as much, hey, we've got wonderful vision, we're just gonna rinse, lather, repeat and do that again. It was more um, that you, you have this opportunity to kind of grind it out and bit by bit by bit 
figure out what a customer wants and kind of get there, um, which both Paul and I are extremely stubborn people. So I think we're bringing that to the table, that that sort of resilience and stubbornness, more so than saying we're bringing you know, great vision to the table. I, I think the the history plays well in terms of some of the things around, you know, funding and, and people's willingness to take a chance. You can get those early deals by saying, we did this before, we're trying something again. Do you want to come be an early customer? And, and people are more willing to give that a try than, right. hey, we have no idea what we're doing. Do you want to be an early customer? Um, the end results are probably the same. I don't think either scenario, you you know what you're doing, but we've just got a lot more history around well, that. You, so you, I assume you make, leap. you don't fall into the same traps at the very least. All new traps. <laughs> exactly. But <laughs> you don't, you don't, but so, and then going back to the second part, how do you, um, being decently capitalized, uh, this time around, how do you not, I mean, at least in my experience doing the startup thing, it's people argue over startup features, product features over a table. I know better. No, I know better. Let's build this. Let's build this. Let's build both. How do you not fall into that trap? Because you don't necessarily need customers. You could just build. Um, well, you, yes. I mean, you're, you're not going to you run do, but out of cash. But, I, but yeah. I think, you know, what you get used to the first time around is the the cadence of quarterly metrics and board presentations and why you have to take those seriously. And those start to look really bad if your metrics don't have customers as part of them. So yes, you don't need it from a near-term cash flow perspective, but you you feel it in embarrassment if you're going to walk into a board meeting and say, we completely whiffed on this quarter. So sure, the friends and family better. part, the friends, friends and family don't care. They're like, whatever metrics, I don't understand. But if you're bringing on a, a, a professional investor, they do know what you're talking about. Well, you can't bamboozle yeah. them. So is it, is it wise, even though you could potentially afford I'm, I'm speculating here, but if you could potentially afford to do it all on your own, is it wise to bring in no. a third-party investor anyway um, to hold you accountable, I, I, or like for I that reason? So. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I I am strongly motivated by not letting down the friends, families, and early investors that took a chance on it. It's right. a human connection. It's not a financial connection. Right. It's that I would have to look at those people and say. Yeah, I totally overbuilt the product and completely screwed it up. Never thought that getting revenue would matter. Sorry, I lost your money. Like that right. that to me would hurt more than the financial aspect of it. Yes. And I know that to not do that, we need the cadence of customers and early revenue and get that get that cycle going. So that's that's what drives it. I, I think yes, you you could afford to make the mistakes you're describing, but I think there's other factors that push you in a direction of not making those mistakes, hopefully. I and mean, how, how did you get there with, with Nudge? So we're, we're uh, about to run out of time, shockingly. But so with Nudge, did you just kind of, an AI product that uses this kind of stuff, this is not something you just bake in, uh, it's not a web app, you just throw up on the web. It, like it, there's things like the AI part of it, whatever that animal happens to be, that takes a lot of time to build. Absolutely, yeah. How, how do you do customer validation while building something really complicated like that? It's it's hard um, because customers are only seeing the the tip of the iceberg, and you know if if you look at the pipeline of pulling your network together and then doing a ton of that research and then presenting what is most interesting, yeah, a customer will see something and and say this is or is not interesting, but it could be anywhere in that pipeline that went a little bit off the rails, yeah. a lot off the rails. Um, so I, I think you you've got to you've got to look at you know the the tactical data, you've got to look at the 
you know, the detailed sessions of, okay, what do people actually do versus what they say they do? You've got to have the conversations and listen for what's being said and what's not being said. And and then I think you put a lot of that together, just hammering it out. Um, you know, a lot of good discussions. The team that we pulled together, um, it's a phenomenal team, all very, very senior technologists. So they know what they're doing. They know how to build the tech. They've spent a lot of time interacting with customers so you can get not one or two opinions at the table you get you know five or ten opinions at the table all of which are very well thought out and you just keep iterating and trying to make something a little bit better and a little bit better um, with you know the customer voice being a huge part of that and and how do you i guess the the engine part the the artificial intelligence engine like that takes a while like you train it or whatever you need to do to mm -hmm. recognize patterns you get user feedback and it's like they don't i don't care that they had bran muffins for breakfast okay fine you have to go back and and do not just five minutes in a redeploy of the app you have to like re-engineer the brain no you you end up the, the way that the ai stuff ends up working is is you have a lot of little pieces of the engine so um what is the content of this article did we you know pull out a bunch of random html from the side mm -hmm. um what is this article about? It's about brand muffins and somebody named Rob Kennedy. Um, is that Rob Kennedy the Rob Kennedy that I know? Let's mm -hmm. put some context around it. Is it really about Rob Kennedy or is he mentioned as some kind of passing reference in the bottom? And, and so I think what you get as feedback from a user, not good, right? Which could be Anyone a of million things. of those things yeah. that have gone wrong. But then that's where you sort of, you can usually take that and say, okay, well, what what do we interpret as not good? Oh, well, it it pulled in this information. This is the part of the engine that we need to tweak. And and you can sort of you can usually hone in fairly quickly and say, oh yeah, this is this is wrong for that really obvious reason. Um, and and that gets you sort of most of the way there to get the engine sort of a lot a lot better. And you guys, so uh, are you guys like uh, going down a similar trajectory with as Eloqua and Eloqua in the sense that you're like we probably need to raise more money to go. Because, I mean, I'm assuming your customers are selling into the enterprise. You need to make this thing really complicated and intelligent. It requires a lot of capital to build the technology and get customers. Uh, is that kind of your path? So our, our general think? thesis is relationships that have trust matter tremendously, and there's an opportunity to help there. But there's a lot of sales tools that um, take a really surface swing at that. They're like, oh, well, relationships are built on communication, so let's automate a bunch of communication. Oh, that's yeah. not going to build trust. That's going to annoy people. We looked at the space and said, there's an opportunity to help with relationships, but to do it, you've got to go deep and really understand and, and put the effort in. So we know that it's a big, it's a big swing. It's mm -hmm. a hard thing to tackle. And it is going to take a long period of time to get better and better and better at it with lots of data and lots of algorithms and lots of iterations to the approach. So yeah, we're in this for we're in this for the long haul. It probably will have a few more rounds of funding behind it. Um, you know, where the path goes from here is is unclear, but we're definitely taking a, a big swing. And the last question I'll ask you is you guys, we just had a chat before the show about this. You just rebranded yourself to nudge.ai. I mean it's still nudge, but yep. nudge.ai is where you go. Um, we we're talking about like uh, sort of priming and stuff like that. Why, why did you do that now? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, the Under the hood, our data science team had done a ton of the machine learning 
pieces that we just talked about to, to get the right research in front of you. And I think when you leave a user unprimed and say, here's some research, eh, okay, sure, there's research there. Don't think about it. If you prime them and say, Nudge is an AI platform that does research, then when they look at that, they're like, oh man, that that is good. That came from somewhere, that was thought about. There was an AI system that popped it in front of me. So priming people to realize that what's coming out of the engine is coming from AI gives them a different lens with which they look at your product. And it's it's been tremendous. We only did that uh, last week, week before. Um, and the the results in terms of people's perception of what they're seeing has has changed, changed dramatically. It was really a, a very successful... Uh, it makes sense brand. to me because, I mean, you could look at it like as a sort of a LinkedIn where it's like there's no intelligence in the network other than what you imbue in it by connecting to people. But uh, once you... Or, or there were other tools that like Charlie or whatever that were just kind of like... I looked, here's a LinkedIn search, bleh. Yep. But this, I think, uh, makes a difference. So, uh, and then it didn't hurt, I think, that AI happens to be hip right now and ha and cool. Does that worry you? Because, I mean, like, the I guess the last question I'll ask you is, you know, there are hype cycles in technology. We are clearly in an AI hype cycle, whatever the heck that means. Uh, just like last year, it was VR. VR, all the things. Now it's AI, all the things. Um, are you worried about the... I mean, I know that you're actually doing real artificial intelligence, whatever, again, that means. Yep. Um, but uh, like in two or three years, you'll still be doing artificial intelligence stuff. Yep. Uh, are, does it concern you that that hype cycle will be like, oh, you know what's cool? Lasers, lasers are cool. And yeah, AI is a... I mean, I think any of those hype cycles, yeah, you, you jump on them for what they are, right? If, right? if people are talking about AI and you're doing AI, join the conversation. Why right. not? It's the thing to do. Right. Is that the be all and end all of what we're trying to build as a business? No. Right. Would we surf it while it's hot? Sure. If we have lasers and, and people are talking about lasers, are we going to join that conversation? Yes. If we don't have any lasers, then we won't join that conversation. We'll have other stuff to talk about. So I, I, I think you've got to be well aware of the hype cycles. You've got to join the relevant conversations that the right buyers are are interested in. But fundamentally, you've got to build something under the hood that actually, at the end of the day, delivers value to the people you're trying to serve. And, and if we're successful at that, the layer of hype on top of it won't matter. If we're not successful at that, no hype is going to save you. Right. Fair. That's a good way to end. Uh, well, thank you very much. So if people want to check out, I gave it away already, but if people want to check out Nudge, where do they go? On the internet. They go to nudge.ai, yes. Yes, go to nudge.ai, shiny and new, the domain at least. Uh, thanks to Steve for coming on the show. Uh, thanks to TWG for hosting us. Thanks to Nick Kuhn for producing the show. Stay tuned next week for a new episode. Thanks very much. Thank you.